Our scripture reading this morning is from the 56th Psalm. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles this morning, you'll find that on page 476. Psalm 56, and we'll be reading the entire song. Likely in your translation that this is titled, In God I Trust. And then prior to verse 1, we find these introductory remarks about this song. To the choir master, according to the dove, on far-off terebinths, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And then verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace. Father, we thank you this morning that we can trust in you when we are afraid. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, which is a light and a lamp. Father, I pray for my brother as he opens up your word this morning, that you would guide him by your spirit, guide us into all truth. Father, and be glorified in the things that are said and done here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Fear is a diverse experience. It can be quite substantial, and it can seem quite silly. It can be based on past experiences, real experiences, real circumstances, or it can be far-fetched and based on imaginary ideas. Fear can be good, giving us a rush of adrenaline so that we stay out of danger. Fear can also be irrational and paralyzing. Fear is not only diverse, it's also common. We've all experienced fear in some way at some point, 
And whatever the threat is, real or imagined, substantial or silly, fear has tremendous power. Fear is the unsettling of the soul. And this unsettling experience drives us to find some place of security, some place of safety, some place of refuge. So the child, in response to the bad dream or the thunderstorm, runs to mom's bed. I say mom because I don't ever hear them come in. Fear in evangelistic opportunities makes us run to what we think is the safety of silence because then there won't be any oppression, there won't be any persecution, then there, then there won't be anything to really make me afraid if I just run to the safe place of silence. Fear makes some people just run away because isolation is the safe place. That's the refuge. Just get away from anyone and anything. Fear is unsettling, and it drives us to find somewhere where we can be safe, somewhere where we can be secure. This morning, we continue our study, what we're calling Psalms for Life. In the Psalms is the grand spectrum of human experience and human emotion, including fear. And in Psalm 56, David is afraid. He is unsettled. And he seeks security looking to the Lord in faith. And that look of faith instructs us as we encounter fear. God's people must respond to fear with faith. You, if you are one of God's people, must respond to fear with faith. I must respond to fear with faith. God's people must respond to fear with faith. Now, in this psalm, David essentially speaks of two different days, and that's how I'm going to organize how we look at this psalm. He speaks of two days, a day of fear and a day of faith. He speaks of the day of fear in verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That word when, actually, the Hebrew word uh, uh, includes the word yom, which is for day, uh, the Hebrew word day. So really, a better translation might be in the day when I am afraid. And then the day of faith will be down in verse 9, in the day when I call. So in verse 3, in the day when I am afraid, and verse 9, in the day when I call. Well, what day is it? What is this time that David speaks of? And in the title, we see when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, this is from 1 Samuel 21. If you want to turn there, if you're using the Pew Bible, 1 Samuel 21 is on page 244. But let me give you kind of the run-up to here. In chapter 16, David is anointed as king as the next king of Israel, even though there's already a king sitting on the throne, King Saul. In chapter 17, David defeats Goliath. 
and uh, by the power of God and his reputation among the people begins to grow. In chapter 18, a song debuts on the Israeli pop charts. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And everybody's singing it. You can't get away from it. It's like the Macarena. I mean, it's like, you know, what does the fox say? It is everywhere. And it's just, and every, see, you can't help but do, look, hey, Hannah, I tell you what, but but this song is everywhere, and everybody's chanting it, and everybody's saying it, and as David's reputation grows, so does Saul's jealousy. To the point that at dinner one night, Saul hurls spears, right? A couple times, he hurls spears across the table at David. So the next time that you think your Thanksgiving dinner is pretty rough, think again, right? But if your father-in-law shows up with a spear, all right, follow David's example and elude it, all right? So we get to chapter 21. And uh, David's on the run. Things have gotten worse. David's on the run now. And he comes to the city of Nob, and he interacts with a priest named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech, he's got no food. He's got no protection. He is just running. And Ahimelech gives him bread that is normally reserved for the priests, and he gives him a sword. But not just any sword. Look at verse 8 and 9 of chapter 21. David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. So he takes it and he goes on his way and his belly is full of the priest's bread and his Belt now has the sword of Goliath hanging from it, and he walks, and you know the next town he comes to is Gath. Now, does that name sound familiar at all? If not, it's because we didn't read chapter 17, because Gath is Goliath's hometown. So here's David coming into Gath with Goliath's sword on his belt. You can just see a couple of guys standing out in their front lawn, right? Right? that's David isn't it you remember yeah he killed Goliath I mean that that was our guy wasn't just enough that he died he took his sword and cut his wait a second what's that on David's belt is that Goliath's sword who does he think he is coming to Goliath's gath with Goliath's sword, with which he cut off Goliath's head. So what you have behind David is Saul and his henchmen and his spies tracking him everywhere he goes, hot on his heels. And in front of him, you have Gath with David with Goliath's sword on his belt. And here is an entire city shamed because David killed their champion. Could you see why David may be a bit unsettled? Is that understandable to you? 
And so David comes to Gath, verse 11, and the servants of Achish, who's the king of Gath, said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing? Did you hear on the radio they were singing about him? Did you not hear at the high school dance they were playing David's song? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. He's not just afraid. The much intensifies it. He is struck with fear to his very core. And that fear is what David is writing about in Psalm 56. And in Psalm 56, as he goes along, we get glimpses of what this fear is like. First of all, it's the fear of constant threats. Constant threats. Look at verse 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. This trampling literally means to pant. It means his enemies are coming with such energy, such fury, such force, such hatred. They are panting. They are breathing down his neck, and they are not going to give up. You see it in verse 1? All day long. Verse 2, all day long. Verse 5, all day long. There's a new song being sung, but by David's enemies. And it's all day long we're coming. Verse 1 says they oppress him. Verse 2 says they attack him. They both carry the same idea. It can either be a physical attack or a non-physical attack. They don't just want him dead. They want him dead and ruined. They want him lying lifeless in a pool of his own misery and forgotten by everybody else. That's what they want. It's also the fear of a ruined reputation. It's just part of that. So in verse 5, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Injure my cause could just be translated, they twist my words. They do everything they can to ruin David's reputation. They misrepresent him. They spread lies until he sinks in despair. I mean, think back. Maybe they, maybe they twist his friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son, that was just David's angle to start a coup. Maybe they twist his marriage to Saul's daughter, Michael, as just a grab for power. Maybe they say he wrote the song about David and his ten thousands. Whatever it is, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They want to ruin his reputation. And it's not just the fear of constant threats and the fear of a ruined reputation. It is, quite literally, the fear of death. Verse 6, they stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. David's enemies are hostile and they are covert. They are working in secret. They are hunting in packs. They are Look, they are like the, you know, the Discovery Channel. They are like the lioness in the tall grass lurking and waiting to pounce. That's what they're doing. Can you imagine being unsettled like that? You're always looking over your shoulder. You're always wondering what's around the next corner. How will they do it? Where are they going to come from next? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? They're lying in wait, which is which is a way of saying they are eager for blood. 
fear of constant threats. It's the fear of a ruined reputation. It's the fear of death, and it is a palpable fear. David is not a stoic. He feels it. He knows the unsettling. In verse 8, he says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. He talks about his tossings and his tears. This word tossings is is a wandering. It is it is a restlessness. There's a restlessness to David's existence here. Doesn't that, isn't that what fear does? There is a restlessness to his existence. The, the root of the word actually means to show grief, which is why he's crying. David is a fugitive, and, and by day he is agitated. He can't settle. He's always anxious. He's always looking around. He's always moving around. And then when it comes to nighttime, he's losing sleep. And when it comes to mealtime, he can't eat. He can't sleep. He can't settle. He's shaking in his boots. And he's weeping at a moment's notice, and he doesn't even know why he's weeping. He's just restless and wandering and tearful. And did you know that today in our culture, David, all these symptoms would be given a whole host of potential diagnoses? But the Bible says they're all growing out of fear. Can you identify with David's situation? Have you ever thought that people were out to ruin you? Maybe a co-worker? Maybe within your own family? Maybe someone you considered to be a friend? Dragging your name through the mud, making up all manner of things about you, misrepresenting you, twisting your words into a weapon with which to just beat you down, accuse you falsely, speak to you with hostility, speak about you with hostility. Have you ever found yourself in such a situation to where it is so bad, it is so pressing, it is so coming that you're having trouble sleeping at night? Your mind is always on it. Your mind is always racing. You're weeping. It's terrible. Any number of symptoms. And have you ever considered that the root could very likely be fear? But not just any fear. Did you notice the common thread through this? His fear is in response to people. This is the fear of man. Verse 1, men trample me. Men oppress me. Men lie about me. Men stir up trouble for me. Men want to ruin me. Men wait for my life. Now, none of us are on the run, I assume. 
I don't know all of you. But none of us are on the run. None of us are in witness protection. None of us are in quite the same circumstance here, and yet the fear of man is quite a prevalent reality in life. The notion of other people ruling us, that we are being ruled by other people, by their opinions, by their approval. That our lives are lived in response to this person and that person and this person. And that my way of thinking and acting and doing is done in response to those people. Because I, 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 have, I have to have your approval. Almost nobody says that. But so many people act like it. Now you sit there and some of us would very quickly raise their hands. Yes, I know fear of man is an issue. And some of us would say, I don't know what you're talking about. So if I could just ask some questions, some of them come from uh, Ed Welch, some of them are mine, but just ask some questions. Just to think about how prevalent the fear of man is. Do, do you tend to overcommit yourself? Meaning, do you have trouble saying no to others' requests even when wisdom says you should say no to that request? You struggle with peer pressure at school, at work, really wanting to be in, in on the conversation around the water cooler, in on the co-worker's lunch outing that was kind of spontaneous. Why didn't they invite me? In on the big decisions. I have things to contribute here. Please call me into that meeting. Desperate to be part and pretty much depressed if we're not. Are you easily embarrassed? Do you second-guess decisions because of how other people might respond to them? Are you afraid of making mistakes because of how you'll look to others? Do you long for people to take notice of, that, of your new home or your new renovation or your new car or your new outfit? Or have you been working really hard to be healthy and you just long for people to say, hey lost a few pounds. Do you post things on social media just built up by the number of likes and comments that you get and almost in despair when nobody takes notice? of this great thing, this great quote, this great moment in your life? Or do you make sure that you seek out certain people and like and comment on theirs so they will know that you care? Do you see where we're going with all these questions? We cherish the good opinions and acceptance of others while their opposition or disapproval threaten us. This is the fear of man. Now, sometimes the fear of man is a response to real actions, as it is in David's case. And sometimes it's just our imagination. It's just the dreaded, what will they think? What will they do? What if? What if? What if? Either way, the controlling influence in life becomes people. 
we replace God with people. It may be just in this moment. It may be in a conversation. It may be a season. And quite frankly, it may have a long-term crippling grip on your life. It is, as Ed Welch's book says so well, when people are big and God is small. And in the day of fear, the fear of man, based on real attacks, David doesn't just stare at it, he doesn't just acknowledge it, he doesn't just bemoan it, he doesn't just ask a friend to coffee so he can whine about it, he doesn't feed it. And he doesn't pretend it's not there. He does what all fear makes us do, which is look for refuge, look for security, look for safety, and he does so by looking to God. That was the day of fear. Now we go to the day of faith. Verse 9 says, in the day when I call. This is a call of faith. In fact, this whole psalm is a call of faith, isn't it? It just begins out, be gracious to me, O God. And then in verses 3 and 4, when I am afraid, in the day when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What, you, what we need to see about this day of faith is that there is something about David's view of God that doesn't simply overshadow his fear. It fights against his fear and it defeats his fear. Fear, But what is this view of God that David has to where he can even say, what can man do to me? Well, I'm just going to run through it. You ready? It's not outlined like I'm outlining. It's just in there. You just got to look and you just see it for what it is. First, this big God has revealed himself. He has made himself known. Did you notice that in verse 4? Verse 3 says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And he does not say, in God whom I praise. He says, in God whose word I praise. Trusting God is not an empty cliche to David. It is not an embroidered pillow. It is not a framed saying. He is not trusting in the God of his own imagination who... He just makes up certain characteristics about this God, and certainly God has to be like that because I think God is like that. No, he knows something of this God because God has revealed himself. And in fact, everything else that we're going to see about this God is basically David's confession of faith in everything God has already said about himself. Okay, does that make sense? You see, in our day, the notion of God seems amorphous. It is undefined. There is no, this is God, and this is not God. There's no, there's no clarity like that. But dear friends, if we are going to face our fear, our fear of man with faith in God, then God must be a name that is full of rich truth and content. It cannot just be a word that slips out of our mouths. In fact, I think we could make a compelling case that when we can just speak the word of God and not think about who God is, we are using the Lord's name in vain. 
And David, like I said, he doesn't outline it. This is not a systematic theology of the doctrine of God. It just comes out in his conversation with the Lord. His understanding of the Word of God informs and fills his prayer to God. You want to grow in your prayer life? Anybody want to grow in your prayer life? Yeah? Yeah? You want to know one way you can grow in your prayer life? One surefire way? Fill your soul with the truth of God. As you understand more of who God is, your prayers will change. Spend time praying with people who know God like that. David's prayer reveals his theology, and dear friends, our prayer reveals our theology as well. Because out of the, the mouth, the heart speaks. So what is it that David has learned? Okay, so God has made himself known. He also knows that God is gracious. Be gracious to me, O God. David knows he has no leverage with God. God is not obliged to do the will of a human being. But God does graciously listen and he answers. And David pleads for God to show him grace to give him favor in his time of fear. He knows he doesn't deserve it, but he knows he needs it. God is powerful. In fact, the, the word God all the way through, the, the, the name for God used almost exclusively in this psalm is Elohim, which points to God's power and strength. It, it points to him as creator and judge. Hey, just think about that. How appropriate when fear is driving David to find a safe place to look to a powerful and strong God. He would write elsewhere, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. God is powerful. Yes, these men are powerful, but God turn but David turns to the God who is all powerful. He's not pretending they can't hurt him. He simply knows there is a greater power than the power of man to oppose and to hurt and to ruin and to kill. Next, God is just. Look at verse 7, this rhetorical question. For their crime, will they escape? Well, no. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. David calls on God to exert his power as judge. He rests in the justice of God. Don't let these men get away with their cruelty. Don't let them get away with their crime. He pleads for God to unleash his wrath on their sin, which means that David believes God is angry at sin every day, Psalm 7. David knows that sin doesn't just make God sad. Oh, beware, parents, those books which would only say of sin to your children, 
sin makes God sad. Sin makes God angry. It is a violation of his holy character. It is cosmic treason. It is not just an unpleasant day. And he calls, casts them down, bring justice. And he even expresses faith that God will. Look at verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. God, God will intervene. God will do it. God is just. Also, God cares. Look at verse 8. So he doesn't just talk about tossings and tears here. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Every tear of David is accounted for by God. Just as God cares and hears the cry of his people in slavery in Egypt, just as God cares and he hears the repetitive and unlearning call of his people for deliverance in the time of Judges, God now hears David, and he cares, and not a single wrong done to him is missed. Dear, fr dear friend, the same is true for all who belong to him. If you belong to God, the tears shed in the tumult of life in this cursed world are kept by God. He notes every one. He's not looking the other way. He's not paying attention to someone else. He's not ignoring you. He cares and He cares deeply. The reason He cares is what's next. God is for him. God is for him. That's what he says in verse, what verse is it? Somebody yell it out. 9 and 10, thank you. This I know that God is for me in God whose word I praise in the Lord whose word I praise. Now every Monday, every Monday I sit down, I start my week basically the same way. One, by ripping up you know, the resignation letter because I felt so bad about the previous day's sermon. But also, I go straight to studying for the next Sunday. I feel this is very, uh, very helpful. So I pull out my spiral notebook that I have all of the texts that I've preached, uh, well, at least as many as it'll hold, and I just start writing. I write the text. So if you are a teacher, this is not a bad thing to do is just handwrite the text that you're going to teach. The thing that I find that's helpful for me is that it slows me down to think about every word, to not rush right off to a commentary, to not rush right off to anybody else, to just ask the Lord to help me see his word the way he want, that, that he has said it, and then start writing and, and, and think. And when I got to verse 10, and I wrote the word Lord, I set my pencil down. This is unreal. It's so great. It is overwhelming. This is the covenant name of God. Yahweh. Pointing to the fact that God 
makes covenant with his people and God will faithfully keep covenant with his people. In all the midst of the power and the strength, in verse 10 comes the intimacy. He doesn't just say, in God whose word I praise. It's like he catches himself. He says, I just said God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In Yahweh. Whose word I praise. How do you know know God is for you? Because of His faithfulness to His covenant. It is on no merit in David and it is on no merit in us that we can say, God is for me. I mean, look at me. Who wouldn't be for me? David looks at God and says, "Why, why would he be for anybody? Because he is the Lord. Yahweh is David's God, and David is Yahweh's man. God is for him. Dear friend, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus shed his blood to establish a new covenant, never to be revoked, never to be replaced, never to be changed, one that will last for all eternity. And those who by faith are in union with Christ, who trust His death for their sin and trust His righteousness for their merit before God, those who turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of the new covenant. And in that new covenant, it's not just that our sins are forgiven. It's that we can say with David, if God is for me, who can be against me? In the end, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor things to come, neither life nor death nor anything in all creation will ever separate me from the love of God. Not because of me, but because of Christ. And so God says to you and to me that He is for us, that He is with us, that He will never forsake us. On what basis, God? Because I forsook Jesus in your place. God is for him. The last thing is that God is sovereign. Look at this rhetorical question in verse 8. Are they not in your book? Now what David is not saying is that God is somehow sitting there and writing down his tossings and his tears as they happen. God doesn't keep record in the same way a biographer does, looking back. God writes a record as a screenwriter does, creating the story, looking forward. Not just writing what he sees is going to happen in the future, but writing it. One clue to this is actually in the language itself. In verse 8, it says, You have kept count of my tossing. The have kept count in the Hebrew language is in the perfect tense, which is a tense that, that encompasses the whole. It sees the action as a whole, that it is completed. But here's what's interesting. 
most of the verbs about what's happening to David are in the imperfect tense, which means they're ongoing. Which means what he's saying is, God, you have a complete account of what is just now unfolding in my life. The other way to know that this is what he's saying here is because this isn't the the only time that David writes about things being written in God's book. In Psalm 139, he says, In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before David is ever on the run, before he's anointed, before he's even born, God has all his days, including his wandering days, including his fugitive days, including his mind-racing days, his anxiety-ridden days, his sleepless nights, his appetiteless mealtimes. He's got it all written in his book. There's not a moment in David's life that is outside the sovereign providence and goodness of God. But why? Why why would God write that? Why would God write that story? And maybe more personally, why, why is God writing your story the way that He is? God is writing David's story this way because God's goal in David's story is not to reduce trouble. God's goal in David's story is to increase his faith and increase the glory of God. And what is it? What is it that will drive David to God? What is it that will throw him to his knees, seeking refuge, seeking strength, seeking security, acknowledging his dependence on God and his power and his strength? Answer. In God's wisdom, this fear will, this despair will. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Hear that. Look at it. So utterly burdened beyond our strength. Oh, God will never give you more than you can handle. Oh, dear friend. Yes, He will. Because there's something better than you being able to handle all of life. It is you learning to rest in the power and strength of Almighty God and His covenant with you in Jesus Christ through every day of life. We believe we had the sentence of death. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who will keep us from experiencing the sentence of death. He doesn't say that. He says, we rely on a God who can raise the dead. Even when death strikes, God has the last word. That's what he's saying. It's amazing. Dear friend, have you ever stopped to consider that the very despair that you are in, as painful and as deep and as overwhelming as it is, is meant by God 
to drive you to God so that you'll see there's no refuge but God. And from there, live. I mean, this fear is cyclical, isn't it? It wasn't just this one time of it. Wouldn't that be nice, right? Scared fear man comes and you say, well, no, 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 I believe in God. And it's all gone, like forever. You just cast it out like it's a demon. Just exercise the demon of fear, all right? It's gone. That is not what happens. Because you know what? Right after he has this great meditation, this deep devotional life where he says, you know, what can flesh do to me? He wakes up the next day and what does he say? All day long they injure my cause. Why is it cyclical? Because you and I have short-term memory problems. And we begin to rely on our own strength and our own power and our own ingenuity and our own problem-solving skills. And we need repetitive struggles in our life to remind us of our constant need to depend on the Lord. To remember that in no day are we self-sufficient. The last thing about this day of faith is that it evidences itself in obedience. Look at verses 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you. I will render thank offerings to you. You have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David's faith is seen in the fact that he continues to worship God. He doesn't do it privately where he can run away from people. He is with the congregation of God's people praising the Lord. He is worshiping. He is doing his vows. And then he says, you've delivered my soul from death. And then there's this little play on words in there. You've kept my feet from falling. Why? That I may walk before God in the light of life. Why is it, dear Christian, that God has kept your feet from falling, delivered your soul from death, so that you will walk in obedience before God in the light of life? In the face of the fear of man, David turns to God in faith. God's people must respond to fear with faith. And this would begin to be collected with other psalms, and God's people would begin to sing this. Can't you just imagine? This is the kind of psalm that Elijah needs when Jezebel is after him, right? This is the kind of psalm the prophets will need when everybody's ridiculing and persecuting them for preaching God's word. This is the psalm that God's people will need as they go into exile and they're under Babylonian rule. This is the psalm that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego need when they refuse to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. This is the psalm that Daniel needs when he refuses to stop praying. And a thousand years after David wrote it, The Lord Jesus will sing it. And he will sing it because men will trample him. Men will oppress him. Men will twist his words. Men will line up false witnesses against him. They'll be hostile to him and they will lurk and they will scheme and they will watch and they will wait to take his life. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he confesses to his disciples, my soul is deeply troubled and he sweats blood not just because of the hostility of man he is facing but because of the hostility of God he will face and yet he prays 
in faith to his father, commits to perform the father's vows, if you will, he would take the punishment of God against us, against our sin, in our place, because he loves us. Jesus Christ faces the scariest reality known to man, the wrath of God, and he walks into it willingly so that the fearsome, great, and terrible wrath of God is absorbed by the blood of Jesus, and we are saved from it. On that cross, the perfect love of God was on full display. And when we come to know the perfect love of God in Christ Jesus, that casts out all fear of judgment. And if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no other way to escape the fearsome wrath of God than to throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust in Jesus Christ and have the fear of judgment cast out by the perfect love of God in Christ. And when that is cast out, we worship the Lord, we walk in obedience to the Lord, and you know what? The, the hostility of others against us is not removed. The fear of man still rears its nasty head. But because of Christ, we know, we know what he meant when he said, don't fear men who can just kill you. Fear God who is sovereign over both your body and your soul. And we can say with David, and we can sing with King Jesus. In the day when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. What can man do to me? Let's pray.